If you've been looking for inspiration, hope, and an insightful look into literacy transformation, you have found the right place. This mini-series is a convergence of ideas, experiences, and aspirations, a symphony of voices that will resonate far beyond the sound waves of our voices. So, with hearts full of hope, minds open to possibility, let us dive into the rich tapestry of discussions, ideas, and dreams that await us. Together, as literacy leaders, let us be the change we wish to see in this world. Thank you for joining us on this remarkable journey towards a brighter future and a more literate society. Welcome to the podcast this week. Thanks so much, everyone, for being here with us again. You've been on this journey with us in this series, and we don't hold back when it comes to bringing experts and leaders to the stage to hear their story. Today is no different. Let me introduce who we will interview today. Dr. Robert Solly from Lodi Unified School District in California. But I also have to mention our co-moderators, Linda Diamond, Dr. Tracy Wheaton, and Dr. Tim Odegaard. Now I'm going to hand it over to Linda as she spends some time with Robert discussing some of the great moves he has made in Lodi. Go ahead, Linda. Thank you, Terry. Well, first of all, I have to say that Robert is an educational leader. He's more of an instructional leader than many superintendents might appear to be. And he's currently the assistant superintendent in Lodi, but he's had 31 years of experience in education including K-8 teaching, administrative experience in curriculum, professional development, and instructional coaching, K-12. So Robert has a very broad background. And I'd like to start out by asking you, Robert, just to describe your school district. Say a little bit about the demographics, your population, and where in California Lodi is since this is a national audience, unless they know Credence Clearwater, they probably don't know where Lodi is. Thank you, Linda. Lodi is in central California. If you head pretty much straight east of the Bay Area, San Francisco, you'll run into us. We have a very large geographic footprint. And so we have some schools that are somewhat out in the country or rural. But we also have the city of Lodi, which is probably 75,000 people. We are also adjacent to Stockton, California, and half of our schools are actually in the city of Stockton. So we have approximately 27,000 students and 32 elementaries, five middle schools, and four comprehensive high schools. So it's, it's a pretty good-sized district. We have a diverse district. We have a lot of English learners, probably 22% English learners. And the demographics in both Stockton and Lodi, doesn't matter if you cut it north, south, east, west. We have as many low-income or Title I schools as not. And so we are a very diverse district. And we have some very high-performing schools. We have one school that back in API days was, I think, ranked in the top four or five in the state. 
as well as some struggling schools. So we've got it all and great staff working diligently in all those environments, but we're trying to work with them to help improve reading, which is the topic of our discussion to continue to help them along their paths. And we're also looking at the secondary level at our practices on how we're helping our students to graduate and not only graduate, but be prepared for either UC system, CSU system, or a career. So that's a short synopsis of Lodi. Right. Thank you, Robert. Because you brought up reading right away, can you talk about what your district has done to improve literacy and specifically how you've determined what to do and what you're going to include in your literacy approach. You don't have to name a particular program, but talk about how you selected what you're going to do and how you decided what was needed. Well, as in many situations, our scores were improving slowly, and we were trying to figure out how to accelerate that process. And the struggles of looking at test data and watching in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grades, the scores flatten out. We decided to tackle the early literacy that we needed to focus in on. We came pretty quickly to the conclusion that we needed to help develop phonemic awareness and phonics and sight words and develop foundational skills at those primary grades. And several years back, probably four years ago, we implemented what was going to be a pilot of a new science of reading process. It started out at a group of nine elementary schools and it was successful. And honestly, what helped it spread was word of mouth, teacher to teacher. It initially started off as a Title I pilot and it started to grow and then the pandemic hit and everything came to a standstill. We were working with CORE as our consultant and doing trainings with teachers and I was very concerned that we were going to have to stop, but we posed the idea of what if we continue these trainings virtually and with our teachers since we were teaching virtually. I was concerned, but I was pleasantly surprised over a few months to realize that it was working and the teacher's feedback was, yeah, let's continue this. It's helpful even in an online learning environment. So we moved through the pandemic distance learning mode of professional development and continued to expand that as we came back. We then were faced with the teacher shortage. So we continued to do some online training, but we were able to meet in person. We brought on some literacy support teachers or intervention teachers, and they received a full dose of the science of reading training, going through the teaching reading source book and really getting a deep dive. They were deployed at sites to enhance the coaching at the site, as well as provide some instruction to students directly. It's evolved from just an initiative with foundational skills and worked its way into the schools and we are expanding and we want to expand further with more intervention and reading support teachers, reading specialists. But the next hurdle to come to us is finding enough of the teachers to get on board. So we're working diligently. Our staff is doing yeoman's job and we would love to do more. We have some limitations, but we'll keep pushing forward. Thanks, Robert. Can you describe a little bit more about how you did bring the science of reading besides the materials? 
but the concepts and the professional development and how it was received in the district. You've already said it worked with the distance learning, but were there any initial hiccups? And have you seen that teachers have really grabbed on? Yeah, when you want to start a new program or a new system of instruction or a new curriculum, there are always some that want to pause and let's see how this works before I dive too deep. But our staff were very concerned at these schools where we were piloting and they were looking for solutions. So the coaching ranks we have here also, we have some English language arts EL coaches, and they were a key support to help provide the training in conjunction with our consultants and to keep that going. They are sort of a link between our consultants and our administrators and our teachers. So we started out small, like I said, and the coaches went into the classrooms and helped co-teach, provides walkthroughs and monitoring and feedback to teachers. How's this going? Great back and forth with our consultant who also zoomed into classrooms to observe. And the resistance really wasn't that problematic because the student response was positive. And when that happens, teachers get on board pretty quick as well as administrators. And I think we saw that happen. Generally, we try to do these organized implementations, but when COVID hit and distance learning hit, we just tried to put the puzzle together as best we could and working with our staff and our consultants and administrators. In my experience over the years, it was very fluid in terms of finding ways through the cracks to make things continue to work and the trainings to happen. I was very hesitant to move down this road when the pandemic hit, but the feedback I was getting from the field was that, no, don't stop. Keep going. It's working. The kids are learning. This is helpful. Our current core program is lacking in this area, and we need to have the skills to crack the code with these students. And so we just kept pushing. Well, and how has that played out with your English learners? How have you improved literacy outcomes for your multilingual learners? And in particular, when we talk about the science of reading, often people just think the science of reading is the foundational skill of word recognition, but we know it's the language skills as well. It's oral language, it's background knowledge and vocabulary. How have you put all of that together to improve the literacy outcomes for your multilingual learners? Well, a couple of things come to mind there. In our pilot schools, a lot of those were larger populations of Yale students. So they were part of the groundswell of the trainings and classrooms that were experiencing this. We've had the opportunity and fortunate ability to bring on some additional staff focused on English learners. We have an English learner coordinator, some English learner reading specialists. And in conjunction with this move to systematic instruction of phonics and phonological awareness, we've also partnered with our county office to do some EL institutes or English learner institutes. And that is embedded in the content of those courses. A lot of what is in the science of reading, we can also find in the teaching reading source book, but there's three things you need to know when you walk into a classroom, as far as the English learner mindset. Question one, I want to ask my teachers, who are your English learners? Question two, what level are they at? They take the LPAC every year and they get a one, two, three, four ability level. And the last question is, do you know how to strategize if the student's at a one versus a three? 
that's what we do with the Yale Institute. And we've put our teachers into those programs and they find it extremely valuable. And in fact, in my prior district, we initially started those science of reading trainings targeting K and one. And then the teachers at the second grade wanted it. And then third grade teachers wanted it. And ultimately what we did is K-6 teachers received that training. Fortunately, back in the days when we had ample substitutes, I'd love to do that again, but we are limited in that area. We can't do it yet. I want to get there. But the benefit that I heard from the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade teachers was that while they are a fifth grade teacher, and in theory, the students are reading to learn, there are a lot of kids struggling to read. So they had tools in their kit then to address those students. And that was a really a big win that wasn't part of the original mindset of we're going to provide our K-3 teachers with these skills. When we spilled it into four, six, I think that's where a lot of the real payoff came because we were able to do some catch-up work with those students who were still fifth graders or sixth graders struggling. Similarly, we also have to work with the students too, to find out what's their fluency in their native language as well. Sometimes that's part of the issue is that they don't have a solid background in their Spanish or Vietnamese as well, because there's not literature in the home or not a lot of discourse. Maybe we're able to focus in on these English learner institutes to help with those concerns. And again, there's a lot of overlap in the foundational skills for English and Spanish. That's very much a sound out the letters process and cracking the code. There's a lot of similarities there. So the benefit was the strong overlap and transference from working with our EL students and our English only students in both situations, the good teaching will benefit. Do you have dual language classes or one? We have one internal charter school. It's a dual language academy. And that's largely, I think your district situation, you've got a large Vietnamese population as well. So it's not like it's only Spanish-speaking students, which tends to be predominant in some of the other districts, but you have this mix. And do you have migrant students as well, since you are Central Valley? Yes, we do have a significant migrant population. Recently, our second largest language population has become Urdu. So the languages change over the years. Our Vietnamese population was much stronger a few years ago, and it has reduced, and Urdu has come into the second spot. Our migrant population is strong. We do have a migrant program in which we serve migrant students specifically. Typically, they're housed at certain schools in our county. There's a migrant camp where the migrant workers reside for their time here while they're working in agriculture. And those three or four sites have a very large EL population. Our challenge there is that they typically leave us in the winter months. We lose sometimes three or more months of instruction with them. And that's really the challenge there. We have to try to catch up either in the fall or in the spring. And it's difficult. And then also when they leave, we can't necessarily be sending lots of materials with them. We don't know if they're coming back, but we do provide as many materials for their home as we can to use throughout the year. We do find many of them coming back, but I'm glad you mentioned that. Our migrant population is pretty sizable and there's some different challenges with that. Obviously the language issue is the same, but some of the other hurdles we have to work through and we work with our county also on that. 
And there was a summer program for English learners. And I should also mention, we started just last year, and I had done this for a few years in my prior district, and I brought it to Lodi last summer. We have a long-term English learner summer school, our LPEL summer school. And it is a small class size. We try to keep it to 15. And it's twofold. The one is to benefit the students. The other is to benefit the teachers and their professional development. And those teachers co-teach. And they're all day learning from each other in that small learning environment of 15 to 1 or so. Every afternoon, when the students go home at lunch, the teachers get two hours of professional development on A, the teaching of reading, but also B, working with their English learners and helping them along. So that's a double win. Ultimately, I want to benefit the students, but my sort of real intent in that is to build the strengths of our teachers. And we hope to continue that for years and years to come. That is a very positive aspect of our summer program. Yeah, that sounds like a great demonstration summer school. And they're learning at the same time as they're teaching. And that is a really excellent plan. You mentioned COVID before, and I had a question about what concerns did COVID bring? But I think you've addressed that because it sounds like you continue to try to do both PD and distance learning with the kids. When you look at the data, I just looked at California's data on the disaster that the lockdowns were in California and just how far behind kids are in reading and math. But did you see any bright lights, any places where kids held their own in maybe certain grades or even at certain schools? Or they decline, but maybe not as much. Obviously, that first COVID year, our scores dropped quite a bit. But across the board, this past data that we just received, everybody is improving. Granted, not improving greatly, but everybody's improving. So I think we've had the bounce and we're back on the way up. It's hard to find pockets of success. It's very so much because we have such a diverse district that When you look at the overall data, things smooth out, but we did have pockets. And I can tell you that summer school, I mentioned the teachers that were part of that and grew from that experience, I know brought that back to their classrooms. And I'm looking at those results. I think you would find some higher growth than the the district average. The overall trend is up again. It wasn't a big bounce, but we're working diligently this year to get much greater growth across the board this year. Well, that reminded me of a question then. Do you have an assessment system in the early grades that's giving you this data? Because obviously the state test, which was paused and is just third grade up, but since you had an early literacy focus, what is it you're using as your data? We do a beginning, middle, and end of year Dibbles assessment in Oregon University's system, and we've been doing that for several years. Our teachers have been very familiar with and skilled at administering that. And that's been very helpful. It does give us solid, consistent data throughout the year. And yeah, as you mentioned, not waiting till the fall after the end of the year to get your results. We have it at hand and can adjust on the fly. Thank you so much, Linda and Robert, for that great discussion. Now I want to open it up to our co-moderators to see their reflections and some more questions for you, Robert. Let me go to Tracy. Happy to jump in, Terry. 
Robert, one of the things I'm so glad that I experienced that you are living is being in what I call the hot seat. I served in your role years ago, and I know that there are political dynamics galore. And I'd like to ask you what you've learned about that new superintendent coming in after you've gotten an initiative rolling who may have this idea that we need something new and sexy. I've got to prove myself to my board. Why this is so crucial to stay the course. And I know that's a very delicate question I'm asking you, but I lived the experience of seeing things strategically abandoned that were working for children. So what's your advice to the superintendents out there? That is a don't poke the bear question. I can tell you currently in my district, I have the great benefit of being under a superintendent who's been in the superintendent's seat for 15 years, actually retiring at the end of the year. The new superintendent coming in is a longtime Lodi staff member also, and I don't fear the shift at that point to the next greatest thing. However, I do have experience of what you're referring to, where the new superintendent comes in and has a new shiny toy. And I guess the best thing at that point, if I was in that situation again, was to have some solid data to show. We do have good data to show dibbles in this particular sample to say, this is the trajectory we're on and changing program or curriculum or strategies is going to have a result on this. So consider whether or not you want to do that, because even if you're changing to a really nice, new, good, shiny toy, the first year of implementation is going to be rocky. So you're going to find your trajectory upward is going to get impeded. For that reason alone, I'd question the decision to do that. But yeah, that's a tough one. I think I just try to rely on data to say, hey, this is working. And also just staff input. Our teachers have found value in what we're doing at these grades. And that is what caused the training to spread from a pilot to basically across the board now. It wasn't that I came in and said, okay, now you're going to do this and you're going to do this. It actually started to spread much faster than I had anticipated. And that was through word of mouth. I would say a new superintendent would need to be cognizant of the favorability that their staff has to a program. That's powerful, Robert, especially what you said about it's the way you do things now. It's embedded in the culture. So it's very difficult for someone to dismantle that kind of good work when it's all tiers and layers. Stakeholders understand their role in the goal. Right. Linda, let me go to you. Yeah, Robert, I'm curious, based on Tracy's question and your response, if I'm not mistaken, you have union support in this work. And that in California in particular is a good way to also be a kind of wall, if you will, against a new superintendent who comes in and wants to get rid of everything because you've already got the teacher union support. Right. And I work closely with our instructional coaches and I use them as sort of my conduit to the sites because having been a teacher, I know that you need to pay close attention to what's actually happening every day and pushing something into the classrooms that is not received well because it's not working well or it's not workable is not going to be productive. So that was one of the reasons, again, why we pilot things to find out if it's going to work and if there's going to be buy-in. Because sometimes systems work, but like I mentioned, if it's not workable, then we can't ask teachers to do things that are not workable. Fortunately, the systems we're using are, 
And definitely it's work. It's not a light load, but the results provide the benefits. So the teachers, that's what they want. And the buy-in comes there, as you mentioned. So that's very helpful also. Yeah, if we have teacher support, that's really a strong factor in maintaining consistency. For all you podcast listeners, I have the privilege of watching faces in this session where we're recording. And I've seen Tim over there taking diligent notes. So Tim, get on up here and share with us your reflections and thoughts about what Robert has shared and even some of your questions. What I've really taken note of is how Dr. Sali is dealing with all of these endemic challenges that everybody say are the reasons why they can't. And he has found ways to do And so he's identified the teacher shortage, the lack of subs, which then interferes with the traditional ways of doing professional development. He talked about an innovation of bringing in a summer institute. Then he mentioned the fact that he has a diverse student population that is ever growing based on migration patterns, for example, which I would imagine is because of an influx from maybe Afghanistan and other places in the globe where Urdu would be a primary language spoken, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Northern India, for example, being some likely places you're getting those patterns. And then just the reality that it takes teacher buy-in. You've acknowledged all of these things that I hear people say time and time again is what makes them special and different. So what is your advice and lessons learned about how you have managed to overcome where other people see obstacles that make them unique and special and a place that something can't happen? So what is your advice to those superintendents who are pushing up against people who say they can't work here because of this laundry list? Well, I always consider myself at heart a teacher first. And when I think back to some of my earlier years in the profession, it wasn't generally the administrators that caused me angst. Sometimes it was my colleagues. What was causing me angst is that I was trying to help the students and somebody else had different ideas. And so I think going back to just finding out from the field, what works, what's workable, and they will take it and go. The school site is a challenging place to be this year, as far as the teachers, because of the issues that come into the classroom. And we have to work with the kids that walk in the classroom. You can't sidestep issues that they bring, but you create a happy, safe environment and help them learn, then students want to be there. Up the chain to the principal. Principals have very demanding jobs and we have to help make their classrooms workable and working and improving and so that the parents are happy and the students are happy so i guess advice to superintendents is don't rock the boat to the point of causing your front lines to be in an untenable situation i don't know an educator that gets up and says i don't want my kids to learn today they all get up and they want their kids to learn they want their kids to be successful and when folks come in and they have the shiny new object or a shiny new toy, I would just caution. We've known now for decades that this system works. Helping students crack the code, it works. So keep working at that. And rather than a new program, go back to that. And there may be a new program because you had something different. I go back to my training decades ago. In my college experience, I was taught whole language is the thing. And at the time, I was scratching my head. These were the people who supposedly knew what was supposed to be happening, so I tried to absorb it. But when I got to my first fifth-grade classroom and half those kids couldn't decode, I didn't have the tools to make it work at that point. So I guess my advice to superintendents is 
don't look for the shiny new toy. Make these systems of foundational skills, learning how to read, decode, sight words on up through obviously comprehension, inference, and so on. And Linda knows me, and I've had experience in the past where there were a lot of shiny new toys. So that's not been the case here in Lodi. There's been consistency. And my comparing the two scenarios, consistency will win if you have a solid program at the base, which I believe we do now with this program. So what I heard you sharing was a kind of a lesson learned that I think why we wanted to get the real folks like you in the field doing it is you can speak concretely to what's happening opposed to more conceptually when you're a person at my level who doesn't live it day in, day out. So concretely, what do you mean by making what works workable? Because a lot of people will throw their hands up and say, I can't do it with fidelity. I can't do this program because it doesn't work in my context. Or we always have to differentiate to make what works in a context. And for some people, that's going to be, well, because leveled readers work for us. And I heard you mention a couple of things, which is I didn't have the tools as an instructional lead to make it work. So obviously having the tool set is going to be one of those. So what do you mean by making what works workable? Well, I think something that's key is helping our staff work well with smaller groups, small group instruction. I was instructed decades ago on everything's whole class. So you sort of teach to the middle. We're now helping our teachers to work with Dibble's data and such. We know which students to put together in groups and helping them work through the scenario of centers and more targeted learning groups. And also with the benefit of having reading specialists and intervention specialists to help support that effort, obviously running into the roadblock of staffing shortages at the point, but making it workable where you can bring in some additional staff, where you can bring in training to help teachers work through small groups. Because again, that's not simple. That's a skill you've got to learn how to work with small groups. But before that, you have to have the data to sort students who need the same or similar instructional components. So. Those are just a couple of things I would think of to help make it workable. And again, that small group instruction helps the teacher to make it workable because again, this isn't easy work and I commend our teachers out there making it happen, but we give them the tools of the training, the resources, the assessment tools, if we can, additional staffing support and even training, but also I haven't spoken to this at all, but helping with supports for the students to take home and reading at home and instruction to parents of how to help your student. What are some things you need to do with your student to help them in their school environment? So those are a couple of things come to mind. Robert, I really appreciate your heart for teachers. I love educators and I don't ever want to forget where I came from either. I'm a recovering high school English teacher. And to your point, it was just mind-blowing to me how my seniors, for example, couldn't spell. They had struggles with just writing a sentence, right? I know in our work, we have kids who graduate from high school and they cannot read and they come to us for adult literacy services and they learn. So could you talk about why it's never too late and how just getting those foundational skills right, as Linda referenced at the beginning of the conversation, it's not, it's not just about phonics. We're not, to quote one of my friends, phonicators. It's much more than that. I can relay somewhat of a scenario from our English learner summer school that I mentioned. Students, seventh and eighth graders, struggling to read and write, and there's a writing component in that program. And we have them give a writing sample on day one and on, on the last day, which is only four weeks later. It's pretty intensive. 
the work that was done in those weeks was remarkable from that first writing prompt response to the last from literally a sentence or two to a full page five paragraph or six paragraph or multi-page letter and sentence structure has improved and the thought process through the writing has improved and the pride those students develop when they compare day one to day 28 is amazing and it's, I believe, a catalyst for them in 12th grade to just continue to run. Uh, so it's never too late. There's other things that students come to the classrooms with various things going on. And sometimes it's a dyslexia challenge. Sometimes it's an autism challenge. Sometimes it's that I didn't get to sleep last night or I had to go to my job after school. But when we can capture them, and we did this in the last summer school, they can learn and they display it every day. Can't ever give up. And I really appreciate your referencing children that have dyslexia. And when you think about special education and you think about early identification, how does that fit into the big picture in your district? Oh, that's key. And obviously there's a lot of room for growth there. We're finding more students who have those challenges or at least discovering who they are. Maybe they were always there, but that's part of the assessment process and doing the one-on-one -on -one assessments and then bringing in additional support. We have staff also come in. If a teacher suspects there's some additional learning challenges, we can bring in some reading specialists or coaches. And then also we have to determine if it's a language issue or is it some other learning challenge. Yesterday in a meeting, a test we administer to find out, is it because the student's an English learner or is it because the student has a different learning disability? And we have to sort that out before we can head down the learning disability path. If it's an English learner challenge, let's administer a different treatment. One of the things that they push back on is that if they're going to have to shoulder this work, how are you going to create the resources they need and in particular the time that they don't seem to think that they have? to allow them to engage in what has to be done, to make what works manageable and workable. How have you allowed and created the space of time to allow this work to happen, even in the challenges that arise post-pandemic? One thing that's helpful, it's kind of a double-edged sword here. If we can give them better data, then they can proceed in a much more expedient manner. Our devil's data is time-consuming. But just this year, we started an assessment that's a digital assessment and it's computer adaptive. And that program then says to the teacher, here's your 20, 30 students. And these five struggle with this standard or this skill and these eight with this. And so they don't have to do the labor of figuring out who is missing, which skill and how do I group these at the the computer adaptive assessment does that on their behalf. And this program will even tell your fifth grade teacher, these are some third grade standards this group of five students missed. And so it shows where the gaps are so they can address that. Even if they're doing a science lesson, they go, oh, I got to remember that these five need support in this area as we work through this academic language year. So I think trying to maximize technology resources to help with that. And there's benefits to one-on-one -on -one devices and some programs that help students one-on-one. -on -one. I'm always concerned with the amount of screen time also that we're asking our kids to be on screens and even teachers for that matter. But to your point, it's hard to free them up with 
certain things as far as assessments. But on the other hand, where we can, the one-on-one assessment, that's been my challenge ever since I started working at Craig Covich. The kindergarten teachers, when I'd ask them to do the one-on-one assessments, they didn't want to put the time in or they love the data because it's very time consuming. The data is very valuable, so you can't have it without the other. But the computer is helping in regard to that because it can collect data somewhat faster and categorize it for you better. But I still say the benefit of a teacher sitting down and listening to each child one-on-one read or attempt to read is of great value. I know a lot of teachers too. One of the assignments is the student will read to their computer and record it. And then you can, at a later time, sit down and listen to the students that you think might be struggling with a particular issue and listen for that, as opposed to having to listen to every child looking for that. So technology resources, I think, would be my best answer to that, at least for the short term. I was thinking, Dr. Sally, about how assessment can be embedded in classroom instruction. So we have things like mastery checks or the way we teach spelling is strategic. And it's not the way I learned to spell where there were just a bunch of words that had no connection at all. How does that work and how does that look in your district? We try to help teachers to think about when you're going through those activities. It's not just pick 20 words out of the story you're reading and use those. They need to be related so that there's consistency of instruction and we're tackling certain blends. I think just a little more strategy on that as opposed to what you alluded to is spelling from the past and spelling lists out of your story and saying these words must be good. And similarly, you mentioned sight words. And I remember as a district leader, it was basically giving grade level words and parents help kids memorize the words versus helping them decode words. So your point about family engagement is so important. Parents as partners and making sure that we are not having them reinforce things that actually are the habits of struggling readers, like the three cueing method, for example. Can you talk a bit about family engagement? You're right. That's what I was alluding to earlier, because most of our parents and many of our current teachers, they were brought through that system as students. And so they need to unlearn some things that we thought were the way to do it. You know, the Friday 30 word spelling test every week, just because we do try to send flyers home to help parents with tips that are helping the student sound out things and focusing in on. As you're going through your day, if they're working on a particular blend that week, maybe the parent can cue in, oh yeah, okay, this is similar to that. So let's reemphasize or reinforce that. I try to find as many positives out of COVID as I can, but I think it did enhance some communication with homes through either Google Classroom or any of the multiple communication tools. A lot of teachers are working much more closely with their parents as far as those kind of tips home to help unlearn some of those experiences we all experienced when we were children so that we don't reinforce those three cues and try to get to more decoding and not guessing at words. Dr. Sully, one of the things that I have heard you say and others that we've had on this podcast, you've got knowledge. You've got a lot of knowledge. I've heard this dichotomy out there. Oh no, administrators, they don't need to know the deep levels And when it comes to decoding and phonological awareness, no, an administrator would never need to know that. I'm hearing that you know that. So can you help me understand why you think it's important for an administrator to have the knowledge that you have 
And secondly, how do you keep your knowledge up to date? What are you doing to learn? I get lots of great information from my teachers and my instructional coaches. They remind me when I'm slipping up and bring things to me to help me improve. And I'm happy to absorb that. We have fall break each year. And several of our teachers attended the EL or English Learner Institute. And that was a three-day, pretty intensive set of days of instruction for our teachers to learn English learning skills and strategies. But right next door was a room of administrators getting the same training. It wasn't as in-depth. It was a full eight-hour day, but they were getting a condensed version of what the teachers were getting in part for their own information, but also at work because when they go into classroom, they need to know what they're looking for. And that's one of the biggest complaints from teachers is my administrator doesn't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So how can they come in and evaluate me? So we are asking as many are working with our principals to come through those institutes as well. Also the science of reading, when we do the teaching reading source book, we like to get our administrators a condensed version. They don't obviously need the full blown version, but they need to know the touchstones on what to look for when they're in those classrooms. And for that matter, some of them. They're eager to sit down and start teaching small group themselves when they walk through, which is critical, helpful to show the children that everybody's here to help me learn. Well, if it wouldn't make such a noise, I would do a mic drop right now on what you just said. So thank you so much for that. Tim, let's go to you for another question. Yeah, I wanted to follow up. Actually, my question was about the knowledge piece that you just highlighted. As a psychological scientist, I've always been a little taken aback by the idea that knowledge wouldn't matter, since we know from decades of psychological science that adult learners have to have background knowledge to understand. In the science of reading, we focus on reading comprehension or maybe oral language comprehension, and we talk about the need for background knowledge. We seem to think that once we pass through the gates of higher ed, that knowledge isn't needed. So one of the things that I've heard you speak to a lot is the need for change, and you've got the knowledge to understand what change might look like. I'm going to give a concrete example from my world. I'll go into a district and they're saying, but we just followed what the state told us to do, which was to make the change because what we were doing wasn't working. What they did was they've changed the name on the box and they've gone back to the first part of an instructional program and they're reteaching again, all the same stuff. And one of the things that I hear that backbone of education, those teachers really fussing about is they've heard the same bloody thing time and time again. Because a new initiative is taken up and it's the same thing and it's the same diluted, low-level type of review of the same content. So I've heard an overview of MTSS. I've heard an overview of screening for dyslexia. I've heard an overview of dyslexia. I've heard an overview of what the five pillars are. How have you used your knowledge to actually inform and change up how you go about the training of your profession? and how you're keeping a gauge on what really is needed for your teachers who you are developing in service as higher level professionals with your knowledge. How are you making those thoughtful decisions about what they need based on where they're at? Just like we have to make those thoughtful decisions about what our students need based on where they're at. I think you sort of answered it there right at the end. We ask our teachers to give us feedback. And I rely on my coaches to make those communications. And when we bring the training to them, whether it's training on how to administer dribbles or how to administer the science reading, phonics instruction, sight words, small groups, all those. And we work with our teachers and some wonderful consultants on how to make that happen. The consultants we work with, I think to a person are 
very experienced educators who've been in those classrooms and who are still in those classrooms. And when teachers see that, the buy-in comes. Okay, I know Anne knows exactly what she's talking about because Anne sat down in my classroom and demonstrated it flawlessly. Or maybe there was a flaw and Anne adapted and corrected that flaw. So that's critical. The top-down approach doesn't work. And that's why we try to train our teachers and then also train our administrators. We don't want our administrators to be asking teachers to do something they shouldn't be doing. I thought that was what you're supposed to do. No, I learned my EL Institute. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to go down this road. I think it goes back to honoring the practitioners of the trade and their experience. If you're in the medical field, if you're applying a treatment as a nurse and it's not working, you're not going to want to continue to apply that treatment until somebody else can come in and tell you a different way to administer it so that it does work. So I think the base of your question is, are we considering the practitioners that have to make this happen, giving them the tools that I'll go back to the word I've used previously that are workable. But as I mentioned, the trainers that we use and the coaches we use to provide this instruction to our teachers have got to be experienced themselves in that environment and the adaptation and continuance of that effort will just flow. I've shunned top-down. I've seen top-down. It doesn't work. Before I turn this over to my colleague, Dr. Tracy Whedon, I want to just follow up and hear what I think part of what you're saying is something that I think is a paradigm shift in in in-service and professional development. And that's making sure that we have instructional leads and coaches who themselves could walk into any classroom that they're supervising or supporting and take up and plan a lesson and do a lesson. I've worked in several districts across the nation in different states where that wasn't part of the job requirements. And when we think about this shift toward implementation science, you have to have your clear, necessary requirements of competencies for holding a position. And I find that as we are in an age of a teacher shortage, the ability to keep people in the profession at high levels and then to apply resources and those things that Dr. Whedon always talks about are time and talent is something that we maybe aren't thinking about doing and that the quality is probably more important than the quantity. I could spend a lot of quantity of providing teachers with different supports, but if it's not with the right people with the right knowledge and competencies, then that's not going to be the traction that they need. And it won't turn them on to how they can enable their students to better succeed. That's kind of what I took away from what I heard you say. Yeah, very much. You mentioned time is just the rarest of things these days. So when we have time with teachers, we have to have maximum impact. I also just think about my English language coordinator. She will, at a drop of a hat, take over and say, all right, let me help you with this small group and sit down. I'm going to teach now. You just sit back and absorb. Our coaches can do that as well. I'm not adept enough to do that. I'm not going to prepare to do that. I've sat through the trainings, but she's much closer. And that's why we need those individuals who can say, yeah, let me take over the driver's seat here. Be comfortable. I'm going to take you where we need to go. And Robert, I want to bridge from what Dr. Odegaard asked to say, how do you protect yourself and your system from initiative overload? There's that saying that if everything is important, then nothing is important. Why is this so important? To protect and to elevate among all the initiatives people want to toss in your lap as a leader. 
It's really good. I've just been meeting the last couple of weeks with my English language coaches, and we are listing all the programs and curriculum that we have. And for that very purpose, we need to focus. Sometimes it's like a buffet. The dessert buffet is awesome, but I can't have one of everything. So we're trying to refocus our efforts in the most effective tools and then also training on those. It's just interesting you said that because that's exactly what we're working on right now is narrowing our toolbox down to the most important. I love that analogy, the dessert buffet. That's great. Linda, let's go to you for a final question. Throughout this last bit of questioning, you have consistently talked about coaches and coaching. And when I think back to Tim's question about what makes it workable is the coaching. Because you recognize that one-off professional development, trainings, workshops, institutes, whatever they are, that may get you the knowledge, but it's the coaching and the ongoing support. So what it seems to me that you've done is make sure that the teachers have a lot of ongoing support to help make the implementation of new curricula, whether it's a foundation skill curricula or what you're learning from the county for English learners, but that they're getting that ongoing support. And what I just want to commend you for is too many school systems still do one-off professional development and are not investing the money in the follow-up in-classroom coaching and support. And I always think about, you know, if I'm greeted at the foot of an airplane by a pilot who tells me that she read a manual for three hours on how to fly the plane and had one simulation with someone, I'm not boarding that plane. And yet, that's too often what happens. And you haven't done that in Lodi. You have invested a lot in both internal coaches and external coaching expertise. And if I was giving advice to a superintendent, and they wanted to know what's important, I would be saying it's the ongoing coaching and support, not just the tool, the curriculum, and the training. I, I would agree. Unfortunately, sometimes we give the training and our coaches are spread thin, so it takes a while for them to get to all classrooms or all sites, but that is very true. And the challenge now with our coaching is we'd love to have more. The staffing situation in the teaching realm right now is hindering that. Funding currently isn't the biggest challenge. It's the lack of available staff. We are fortunate to still have a group of terrific coaches and our consultant coaches are amazing as well, though they are practitioners themselves. They're not simply coming in and saying, here's what you need to do. They've done it. So that also bears a lot of weight with the teachers when they're in the sessions getting these trainings. But the site visits are super important. We do those as well to follow up with either the consultants or the coaches. Our coaches are out daily in classrooms. 
as many as they can. Again, the teachers in the classroom see them as colleagues and as understanding their situation and are much more willing to be just honest and open, more so than they would be with maybe their principal. That's why I lean on them to say, tell me what's really happening. I don't want to get the filtered version. I want to get the straight story. Dr. Solly, I've heard so many leadership characteristics coming out of you during our time together. Wow. And the consistency with those that we've had on this podcast and will have with what makes literacy work in a school district. Thank you so much for your time, your expertise, your knowledge. I know you've probably got a school to get to or a coach to talk to today. So we will wrap up our podcast. Thank you so much for being here as an esteemed guest with us. I also want to thank my co-moderators, Linda Diamond, Dr. Tim Odegaard, and Dr. Tracy Whedon. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of today's episode. We hope you found it inspiring and insightful. Remember, our community at Learning Ally is more than just this podcast. It's a vibrant, supportive network of peers and like-minded individuals who share passions and interest in advancing and understanding evidence-based literacy instruction. By joining our community, you'll unlock a world of opportunities. You'll be part of a space that offers exclusive content and discussions to fuel your growth. Networking opportunities with renowned thought leaders, colleagues, and peers and a platform that supports and encourages you to share your ideas, experiences, and insights. We're inviting you to take the next step and become an active member of our community. Your voice matters, and we can't wait to hear that voice. It's easy to get started. Simply click the community link in the podcast description. Your presence and contributions will make our community stronger and more vibrant. We're truly grateful that you are here. Thank you for listening today. And we can't wait to welcome you into the community. Remember, none of us are alone in this journey. And we're here to support one another every step of the way. Until next time, stay connected, stay inspired, and stay a part of our wonderful community.